So here's Jesus where he has this man with a telephone pole sticking out of his eye. And he's trying to come and point out the speck that's in your eye. Hey, brother, you got a little sliver in your eye. And his point is, is that we have this tendency to go around nitpicking when we need to be plank pulling. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've moved into Chapter 2 of our study of the Book of Romans. Pastor Brogy noted yesterday that the last half of Chapter 1 dealt with the horrific sins of people other than the audience to whom Paul was writing. These readers might think to themselves that they were nowhere near as bad as those whom Paul was previously addressing. And so in this section, the Apostle clarifies that even the person who thinks himself to be morally upright, and who might even judge the other person, is actually as guilty as anyone else who is not trusted in Christ as his Redeemer. Many a person has misunderstood this passage. They'll say, ah, you speak about sin, judge not. Lest you be judged, I tell people there's four verses in the sinner's Bible. The one I just read, ah, judge not, lest you be judged. Cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those who help themselves, and Jesus drank wine. Those are their four favorite verses. Now, understand, Paul nor Jesus is calling us to suspend all critical judgment. That's one of the things that makes us different from animals. We are made in the image of God. And that is clear that he's not calling us to suspend critical judgment from one, the context of the sermon, and the immediate context. Think your way through this sermon for just a moment. Jesus said in the fifth chapter, you're not to be like the world. He said that your righteousness is not to be like the righteous of Righteousness of a Pharisee, that your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Jesus said that you are not to be like the hypocrites in chapter 6, in your giving and in your fasting um, and in your praying. Well, how can you possibly obey commandments like that, not to be like hypocrites, not to have Pharisaic righteousness, not to be like the world, unless I judge the performance of others first to see if that's true of my lifestyle? Beyond, of course, the broader context, the fact that he says there's a time for discernment and evaluation is seen in what follows just a few verses later. Look down in your text at verse 6 of Matthew 7. Jesus said, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now that sounds a little bit harsh. For Jesus Christ to refer to people as swine and as dogs. But remember, Jesus, whenever he spoke, he spoke with love. Always. Jesus, you, you can't take the, the, the fruit of the Spirit and dissect them and say, well, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those nine qualities. And so I've got one and not the other. You can no more dissect those than you can dissect the attributes of God. And by the way, it doesn't say the fruit of the, the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit of the Spirit is, because God knows the degree to which you have one is the degree to which you have the other. So whenever Jesus spoke, he spoke out of all the attributes of God Almighty. And yet he calls some people 
dogs and swine or pigs in some of your translation. He called Herod that fox. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. In another occasion, he called them whitewashed tombs. And here he uses this designation. Why? Because some people are like animals, but not just any kind of animal, dirty animals. The, the dogs that the Lord Jesus had in mind was not some beautiful lap dog that you'd see in a nice home. He's talking about the pariah dogs of the first century that would roam the garbage dumps, that would eat and feed upon trash. And he also refers, of course, here to swine. Now remember, Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish Christians. It's the Jewish gospel in the New Testament. And to a Jew, swine or pigs were ceremonially unclean. God forbade it in the Old Testament in their diet, not to mention they were dirty animals. They loved to play in the mud. In addition, he said a Jew would never give that which is holy or what some translate holy food, that is uh, something previously offered in sacrifice to a dog any more than he would give a pearl to a swine because a pig would probably mistake it for a pea and then spit it out and trample it or maybe even attack the one who gave it to him. So the picture of the parable is clear, but what is its application? What is the holy thing that the Lord Jesus is speaking of? What is indeed, what indeed are the pearls? Well, if you don't have it out on your margin, uh, circle it or write it out there. Matthew 13, 44 to 50. Matthew 13, 44 to 50. Matthew 13 comprises the kingdom parables. Jesus, after he accuses the Pharisees of committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, one of the questions people would ask and want to know an answer to is, well, indeed, if the religious leadership of Israel has rejected God's offer of a kingdom, what is God going to do with the nation? And so in the 13th chapter, he answers that. And in that passage, which I hope you just jotted down, the pearl of great value is salvation, or by extension, the gospel message. The Lord Jesus understands when he says, do not cast your pearl before swine, he is not forbidding us to share the gospel. That would go against his heartbeat, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He has commissioned us to go into the world and to preach the gospel. He's not forbidding us to preach the gospel, but what he is forbidding us is to not share the gospel with a certain kind of unbeliever. By the way, Peter, if you remember, in 2 Peter 2, a chapter that parallels the book of Jude, he compares a certain kind of unbeliever with the same two designations, dogs and hogs. Some people are like dogs in that they return to their vomit, and some people are like hogs and that after they're cleaned up, they go back into the mud and they wallow there. Why? Because while on the outside it may look like they've been changed, on the inside they are fundamentally the same. And so there is a time when you're dealing with a certain kind of unbeliever who has such a disdain and hatred and distaste for the gospel that you are to withhold the gospel pearl. Years ago, I had the opportunity to hear Madeleine Mary O'Hare, it was 1978, the self-proclaimed atheist who used her six-year-old son to get prayer out of the public schools in the 1960s. By the way, God has a sense of humor. He is a committed, born-again Christian today who preaches the gospel. Nonetheless, I heard her speak. Listen, 
If a man can be anointed by the Spirit of God to preach the Word of God, that was a woman who was anointed by the devil. She spoke with such devilish power, such demonic hatred, precisely articulating the gospel. She unfolded the gospel exactly as it's found in Scripture, and then she spat on it and trampled all over it and made fun of it. And I'm telling you, there was a power in that room. Many a person could hardly even move when she was done. Sometimes the Spirit of God falls on a place and there's just a, 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 a quietness. A, a God's visited. I'm telling you, the devil visited that night. Years later, W.A. Criswell was at Dallas Seminary. He was, at the time, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, where he served for 50 years. I'm always amazed that the first two pastors of that church both served 50 years. Two pastors in 100 years. And um, we would have one of these different pastors would come in brown bag lunches where you could ask them questions. One of my friends asked Dr. Criswell this question. Dr. Criswell, as you look back over all your years of ministry, what was maybe the biggest mistake that you had ever done? He said, one of the most foolish decisions I ever made was to debate Madeline Murray O'Hare, thinking that somehow I could convert her to Jesus Christ. There is a time when you withhold the gospel pearl. In Jesus' teaching, by that very statement in Matthew 7 and verse 6, that there's a time when you are to exercise as a Christian your critical powers. Now, I cannot say that there have been many times in my Christian life where I've done that, but I will remember a time and it is branded in my heart. I was serving on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And we were praying and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And we were in a particular uh, fraternity house, the SAEs. There was about 50 men who were present. And 25 men that night received Christ. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. And God began a revival in that fraternity house that had an impact and an influence for years to this day. Two nights later, I went into another fraternity house to preach the gospel. And about five minutes into my message of the gospel, people began to heckle and joke and make sexual innuendos about the Son of God. And, and they began to say blasphemous things. And I stopped. And I rebuked those men who were there. I closed my Bible and I left. There is a time where there is such a disdain, a hatred for holy things that you are to stop. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he told his men that when they would go, they would go to many places where there would be an openness to the gospel. And so when you came to those places where the people were open, he said, listen, they want to be hospitable to you. Receive their hospitality and, and state a blessing on that home. But he said, at the same time, there will be some places you go where there will be a disdain for the things of God. And so he said, whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. What I'm trying to make this point this morning is that not all judgment is forbidden by Scripture. 
is that there are many times in Scripture where judgment is encouraged. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul said, when we come to the Lord's table, when we hold the very elements, the bread and the juice that are symbols of the body and blood of Christ, that we are to judge ourselves. That we are not to partake in the Lord's Supper knowing that there is unrepentant sin in our lives because we're mocking the very symbols that we are holding. And when we do so, we invite judgment upon ourselves, the discipline of God. So there's a place for judgment. In addition, elders of the church are to exercise church discipline and they are to be discerning. When it is that a sinner is truly repentant, that involves judgment. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he reminded them that there was a man in their church whom they knew about. He says it's broadly known, the Greek word is kaleo, it's, it's broadcasted in the church that there's a man there who's sleeping with his stepmother and everybody's just looking the other way like nothing happened. And Paul says you've become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, in order that the one who has done this deed must be removed in your midst. From your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body and present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. By the way, he was a true believer. And 2 Corinthians indicated that they also need to, they needed once again to exercise discernment in receiving him back into the body because his repentance was real. The Bible also tells us that we are to judge pastors. And Bible teachers, many places in the New Testament. For instance, Paul said in this same epistle, Romans 16, 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the doctrine, that is to the teaching, which you learned, turn away from them. We, earlier this year, did a verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of 2 John. Do you remember what we studied in 2 John 10 and 11? He said, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the teaching of the apostles, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And we, when we studied this book, we understood contextually that a, cult, a greeting in this culture referred to among other things like hospitality and feeding and caring and sending someone off with a blessing. I wonder how popular John would be today for identifying some false preacher or priest who said, listen, this man is teaching error. Have nothing to do with him. Don't even feed him, much less say, God bless you when he leaves. He wouldn't be popular today. Yet we're afraid to practice biblical separation when it is to be practiced because we think it's unloving. The reality is, is it's very loving because otherwise we condone error. Jesus himself will say, listen to these words, the one who said, judge not lest you be judged. He said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And by the way, the word judge, krino, is the same word he just used in Matthew 7 and the same word that Paul is using in Romans chapter 2. And so when Paul in Romans 2 spoke against being judgmental, when Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged, neither of them were saying that you do not have a role and responsibility to discern between good and evil, truth and error. However, what God is against is a self-righteous condemnation of another person. Let me read the parallel text when on another occasion Jesus was preaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount from Luke's gospel. Listen to this word in Luke 6 verse 36. Jesus said, be merciful just as your father is merciful. 
And do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will not be pardoned. In Greek, sometimes, if you want to string together a number of words, you use an identical conjunction. And the Greek conjunction translated and here inseparably connects mercy, judge, condemn, and pardon. The kind of judging that God is against is unmerciful judgment. And a judgmental person, when he will evaluate someone else's motives, usually are not as generous with that person as they would be with themselves. And so Jesus will say in the next verse, give and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, typically, we use this verse in terms of money. We say, you know, give financially, and it will be given to you. And I suppose that is a legitimate application because that truth is taught in other passages. But don't miss the context in its original interpretation and its context. Jesus is saying, when you give in the sense of showing mercy and a spirit of forgiveness, God and others are going to give back to you. And so Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 2, for in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. His point is the way you give to other people, they'll give back to you. If you're merciful and forgiving and non-judgmental with other people, they'll be merciful and forgiving and not judgmental to you, not to mention God himself. And so when both Paul and Christ teach Christians that we are not to be judgmental, they are not saying you are not to be discerning or discriminating. Listen, there are certain things that God has said is, are wrong. And we need dads and moms, preachers, men and women to stand up and say, this is wrong or this is right. Listen, adultery is wrong. Premarital sex is wrong. Drunkenness is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Abortion is wrong. Murder is wrong. And it doesn't matter what the politician is saying in our day. That's not my judgment. That's God's judgment. He has spoken. We are just echoing precisely what he has said. But to take a stance in these last days against theological or moral error, people will say, well, judge not. Lest you be judged. And so we have a generation of young people who are being sucked down into sin and we need some people with some backbone who are willing to stand up and to say what is right and what is wrong. Now scripture must interpret scripture because the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. This is not a requirement when he says judge not. It's not a requirement to be blind. It's a plea from the Lord to be generous towards people. He's not telling us to, to cease our ability to evaluate. Again, that's what makes us different from animals among other things. We're made in God's image. Now go back to Romans chapter 2. Paul is demonstrating here in Romans 2 that the moral man who nitpicks over other people cannot say that he is innocent because he understands the standard and in saying what you're doing is wrong, he has laid out the standard. And when he lays out the standard that he fully knows and he doesn't apply it himself, then he is, in essence, bringing his own guilt upon himself. So, number one, the respectable sinner is warped 
in his thinking. Number two, the respectable sinner is guilty of hypocrisy. The respectable sinner, the moralist, is guilty of hypocrisy. Look now at verse two. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Would you circle those two words? We know. Again, it's the same argument the apostle made in chapter 1. The similarities between the moral man and the pagan man in chapters 2 and chapters 1 are plain. Both groups have a certain knowledge of God as creator and judge, but both groups contradict that knowledge by their behavior. Now, the depraved Gentile we read of in 132, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. But here of the moral man, Paul says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So what's the difference between these two groups? Well, the first group does things that they know to be wrong, and they give hearty approval to those who would do it with them. Whereas the moral man, the respectable sinner that Paul addresses in the first half of chapter 2, he also knows to be what is wrong, but he condemns other people who do the very things that he is guilty of. And again, that is hypocrisy. And may I say, that our fallen Adamic nature loves to do this. We're often very harsh in our judgment of other people when we are very lenient towards ourselves. There's a, there's a certain satisfaction that our fallen nature gets when we drag other people down because it gives us a chance to lift ourselves up. It may be slick, but it's sick and it is sinful. Do you remember what the Lord said in, again in Luke 6? The same illustration that he gives in Matthew 7, but he gives a little more detail. So let me read it to you. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Of course not. Will they not both fall into a pit? Yes, they will. A pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Implication, as his disciples, we are to emulate him. So he says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so the Lord, as he often does, uses hyperbole to drive home his point so you cannot miss it. The word for speck, karphos, is used of a little tiny splinter. Whereas the Greek word that's used for log, dogkos, is used of a large beam like a joist on a house. Now, think about it. Both the splinter and the large beam are made out of the same material. So they have the same problem. One has a bigger problem than the other, but they both have the same problem. So here's Jesus where he has this man with a telephone pole sticking out of his eye, and he's trying to come and point out the speck that's in your eye. Hey, brother, you got a little sliver in your eye. And his point is, is that we have this tendency to go around nitpicking when we need to be plank pulling. That's his point. He's describing a person who's practicing what I call spiritual ophthalmology. Question, do I have a little speck of dirt here in the corner of my eye this morning? You say, I don't know, pastor. I'm not close enough to see. I can't get that close from where you're standing. Listen, it would be ludicrous for you to definitely say that I have a little speck in my eye when you are so far away. And so Jesus is saying here, how can you say to your brother, 
Brother, let me take the speck that is in uh, take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. And that's what the hypocritical tend to be. They're hypocrites by the way they act. They're looking for something. People come to church. I call them speck hunters. They come to a church looking for a problem. And listen, if you came here this morning to find fault with this preacher, to find fault with some nursery worker, some choir member, some greeter, you will find it. Because we are a collection of sinners, just like you. But I want to tell you, if you came here this morning looking for God, you will find him too. And so Jesus is saying something that is often overlooked. He said, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, unfortunately, some have concluded from the parable of the foreign body that Jesus is saying, mind your own business. There's never a time to deal with a problem in another individual's life. But please notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, get the log out of your own eye and then ignore the splinter in your brother's eye. No, in essence, he's saying, listen, confess your own sin, clean up your own life, get the specks out of your eye first, and then with clear spiritual vision, you will be able to help your brother. My father, as most of you know, was an eye surgeon. He practiced ophthalmology for 50 years, from 1950 to 2000. And people often on weekends or time when it was not appropriate, they come over to the home and dad would say, uh, there's a guy with a foreign body in his eye. Oh, it sounded spooky to us, a foreign body, woo, you know. And, but it really was foreign. It was alien because that piece of dirt, that piece of metal didn't belong in the eye because it could cause damage and infection, and it would be less than loving if he had that skill to remove it, and he did nothing about it. And so too in the spiritual realm. If we are to be spiritual ophthalmologists, and there is a place for it, make sure that you do it properly. Make sure the speck is out of your own eye. Make sure your plank is out of your own eye before you go looking for specks in other people. And again, we are not forbidden to do this. There's a place to do it. When Paul writes the church at Galatia, he says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The verse assumes that the person who is removing the speck is spiritual. That is, his eyesight are, is clean. That he is a spirit-filled individual. That he doesn't go with an air, a spirit of arrogance and pride, but he goes looking lest he too be tempted. He goes with the spirit. There go I, but by the grace of God. He doesn't go with the attitude, well, you're committing drunkenness. You're committing adultery. I could never do that. Friend, you go with that spirit and you are tempting the devil to tempt you. You go with a spirit of humility. And again, the word that he uses here for restore was a first century medical term of two bones that were out of joint that are brought together that there might be healing. You don't write him off as a rebel. Your attempt is to restore him as a brother. The person who judges righteously is solely motivated to please God. And he's looked at his own condition before ever daring to look at the condition of another. 
to listen again to today's message entitled The Deadliest Sin in the World, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit our website at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM6. Tomorrow, Dr. Berge's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at the deadliest sin in the world. Join us then as we search the scriptures.